Welcome to Murder Under the Midnight Sun's third anniversary special episode. I hope that the pandemic is finding you all well. Hope that you're staying sane, staying safe, staying home, and like I am, probably binge watching a lot of crappy television and horror movies. Hopefully I can provide you a little bit of a lighthearted break with this episode. I asked some of my listeners and fellow podcast hosts to submit lighter-hearted true crime stories just so we can get a little bit of a break from all the murder and mayhem. I love murder and mayhem as much as the rest of you, but sometimes it's nice to uh, get a little bit of the lighter side of life. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. And of course, my deepest thanks to everyone that submitted. You guys are the best. And I can't believe that it's been three years. But that's thanks to my listeners, my fellow podcast hosts that keep me motivated, and of course, my wonderful patrons. If you would like to become a patron of the show, simply click the link in the show notes. I'm going to send you goodies, and you're going to like it, whether you want to or not. Tonight's first story comes from one of my favorite true crime hosts and friends, and that's Cambo from True Crime Island. Now, if you guys don't listen to his podcast yet, you should definitely check it out. It's fantastic. He's actually been around longer than me, I think about three and a half years. He just had his third year anniversary a few months back. So check it out. There's quite a few episodes. He is one of the most supportive and friendliest true crime podcasters out there. So thank you so much, Cambo. You're the best. Hi, I'm Cambo from True Crime Island, and I'd like to say congratulations to Ari for the third birthday of Murder Under the Midnight Sun. Wow, it's been three years, and I do remember the very first episode when it came out, because Ari was already an Islander, and she told me, I'm going to put out a podcast. So wishing you the best for many years to come. So here's a story I found on the Daily Mail about how some criminals are just too dumb to believe. So I'm going to read this out directly. A man wanted by police made a couple of critical mistakes that led to his capture. He sent out Snapchat messages pinpointing his location. The Somerset County Sheriff's Office had been looking for Christopher Wallace of Fairfield, Maine for several weeks in connection with a burglary in January. Police said that on Sunday night, they received tips from people who said Wallace, 24, had posted on Snapchat that he'd returned to his Fairfield home. The Somerset County Sheriff's Office posted on Facebook on Monday, Over the past few weeks since our press release looking for the public's assistance in locating him, Mr Wallace had become cocky, which led to his downfall. Now, this is where the story picks up. Using the Snapchat app, Wallace posted that he was at his house in Fairfield, which prompted people to call the sheriff's office. Police went to the house, and while they were searching with permission of the resident, they were tipped off that Wallace had posted a new Snapchat message saying police were in the house looking for him and he was hiding in a cabinet. Police wrote, A search of the kitchen cabinets turned up some food, some pots and pans, and also a pair of feet. (laughs) 
the pair of feet just so happened to be attached to a person. And that person was Christopher Wallace. The police added he was removed from the cabinet and placed under arrest. All of that brings me to the moral of this story. Always remain humble, my friends. Erica Hall, 20, was also arrested for hindering apprehension. The Sheriff's Office wrote on Facebook, Let's put it this way. When police ask you multiple times if someone's in the house and you answer repeatedly that they're not in the house and that you have not seen this said person in weeks, you're just going to get arrested. And that's how it happens. Boom, fuckalunga. So those two mental giants got what was coming. So again, happy birthday, Ari, and best wishes from the island. Thanks, Cambo. I love stories like that. It seems like a lot of police departments are getting a lot more hip to using social media to catch people, and uh, the people haven't really caught up to the fact that if you post your location, it makes it really easy to catch you and arrest you. So I think we're going to see a lot more stories like that for the next few years. And thank you so much. And I made a connection last night. I feel like Cambo might sound exactly like John Jarrett, the Australian actor, which is not a bad thing. He's got a great accent, um, despite the fact that he frequently plays psychopathic serial killers, but just take it as the compliment it is. Next up, I've got a submission from another podcast that has always been really helpful in submitting stuff to my collaborative podcast episodes for the last couple of years, actually, just like Cambo, and I really appreciate them. And while Jim was unable to join for this submission, I really appreciate his co-host stepping up to send us something. It was very kind of you. And we are sending out lots of love to you, Jim, and your family. Thank you. Hello, everyone. My name is Kit Karen, and in case you don't know me, I am the co-host of the Forgotten News Podcast. We would like to thank Ariel for inviting us to participate on this anniversary episode of Murder Under the Midnight Sun. My co-host, Jim, had originally planned on participating with me. However, he will not be here, because he is currently dealing with the recent unexpected death of his mom, and he just didn't feel up to recording at this point in time. Now, Ariel asked us to tell you a lighthearted true crime story, and I will be sharing one that Jim found in the July 9th, 1867 issue of the Cleveland Plain Dealer. In fact, he had actually chosen this story shortly prior to his mom passing away. So, for that reason, Jim will be with us in spirit, although not in voice. But, before I begin, I think I should make you aware that it was extremely common in 19th century newspapers for editors and reporters to mix their opinions into news articles. And 
This story is no exception. The article is titled, Polyandry, A Woman with Three Husbands. I will be reading the story verbatim. And here it is. <laughs> I feel like I'm on stage. <laughs> okay. In the year 1859, John Wilson an old man and his wife moved from Canada into Huron County, approximately 65 miles southwest of Cleveland, bringing with them an adopted daughter named Margaret, who was then 17 years of age. Shortly afterward, the girl became acquainted with a man by the name of Edward Gray who was approximately 10 years older than her at the time. This friendship quickly evolved into marriage, and then a baby girl. However, this man Gray soon became tired of married life, repented of his decision, and enlisted in the Army in 1861, when President Lincoln first called for volunteers. He survived the war and took up residence in Tennessee, where he was living at last account. The wife, being thus freed from all restraint by the absence of her husband, chose to become a common prostitute and procured a living by hanging around the army camp then located at Monroeville and Norwalk. Margaret soon became an intolerable nuisance, and the officer then commanding the camp issued an order for her to be seized, tarred, and removed from the district. The immediate aftermath of this was that she left Ohio and returned to her old hometown in Canada. She had not been there very long before she made the acquaintance of a man by the name of Eli Doan, whom she married, and they soon became the parents of a pretty little curly-haired girl who was christened Alice. Then, about this time, she met and became friendly with a young man from the state of New York by the name of Edward Teeter, who had joined the army three times in different cities during the war, then deserted each time after being paid a bounty for his enlistment. He ultimately evaded a military search party during the war after his final desertion by escaping to Canada under a false name. At some point, after becoming acquainted with Teeter, Margaret learned that he was planning to come back to the States to visit his mother. 
she then sought and obtained the permission of her husband to accompany Teeter across the border to visit her parents who were still living in Huron County so that they could meet baby Alice. However, instead of visiting his mother, Teeter came to Huron County with Margaret. After staying there for about three weeks, he swore out a license and he and Margaret were married. This was where things stood for about 10 months when a child was born to them. And when the child was about two weeks old, husband number two turned up in search of his wife and child. But contrary to expectation, and we might say human nature, he was willing to place second fiddle, and he continued with only a share of the woman whom he considered as his wife, yet whom he had no more legal right to than husband number three. This state of affairs did not conform to the sense of propriety of the parents of Margaret, with whom they had been staying. And as time went on, the parents began to smell a rat. So, they sought legal advice, wherein they soon learned that it is a serious crime under the laws of the state of Ohio for a person to attempt to have more than one spouse and is also falsely swearing under oath to obtain a marriage license. This information was then given to the ears of Margaret and the two men. And so, in fear of an investigation, indictment, or jail, they quickly packed their belongings and vanished to parts unknown. Wife, both husbands, and all three children vanished without a trace. And that brings us to the end of the story. I hope you liked it, Ariel, and that your audience liked it. Because, if nothing else, in this time of the coronavirus, home confinement, social distancing, and no touching, (laughs) I hope that The story brought a few minutes of distraction and perhaps a sly smile to the face of everyone out there in the listening audience. By the way, speaking of hope, I definitely hope that all of you are social distancing 
and doing whatever you can to try to be as happy and kind as you possibly can under the circumstances. <laughs> now, I will say one more thing before I go. If you are someone who likes obscure, strange, or unusual stories from history, be sure to check out our show, The Forgotten News Podcast. Hopefully, both me and Jim will be on the next episode. Goodbye, everyone, and thank you for listening. that wonderful submission. I really liked that story. And I know what you're thinking. Three husbands seems like a handful. But what if it was the perfect three husbands? So first you have someone super handsome and suave. So obviously Idris Elba. Oh my god. Then you've got somebody that's hilarious and the opposite of suave. So John Mulaney. He's gonna make you laugh all day long. But I could not think of a third third facet. So I'm just going to have to go with a super hot chef. And there you have a perfect four-way marriage. Next up, I've got a submission from possibly the most informed person about unsolved mysteries other than the late Robert Stack. It is, of course, Robin Warder. Hello everyone, this is Robin Warder, host of the True Crime Podcast, The Trail Went Cold, and I've been asked to provide some sort of funny, light-hearted true crime story on this episode, so I'm going to share one of my all-time favorite tales about an astonishing series of coincidences. If you've ever listened to my podcast, you'll know that I'm an Unsolved Mysteries fanatic, but I also grew up watching America's Most Wanted, and the following story might be the greatest capture of a wanted fugitive who was profiled on that show. In fact, I once included this story in an article I wrote for Cracked several years ago, but I'm not sure it's ever been shared on a podcast, so here it is. Anyway, on May the 20th, 2000, America's Most Wanted aired a segment about a 31-year-old fugitive named Asghar Ali. Three months earlier, a woman named Ama Buter was found stabbed to death inside the closet of her home in Indianapolis, and a fingerprint matching Ali was found at the scene. Since the victim's cousin had recently broken up with Ali, he immediately became a potential suspect and was wanted for questioning by the Indianapolis Police Department. But it soon became apparent that he had fled the state, because Ali would now be linked to the attempted murder and burglary of a store owner in Orlando, so he now became an ideal candidate to be profiled on America's Most Wanted. Well, the night the segment aired, law enforcement immediately started receiving tips from viewers who recognized Ali as a man named Jose Torres, who was currently employed as a cook at a restaurant in Jacksonville, Florida, called the American Cafe. It wasn't long before Jose Torres was tracked down and captured, and yes, it turned out to be Oscar Ali living under a false identity. But here's the truly remarkable part of the story. Only two weeks before the segment aired, John Walsh, whom, as I'm sure you know, was the host of America's Most Wanted, 
actually traveled to Florida to work with the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office in order to film some crossover episodes between America's Most Wanted and another insanely popular TV show you might have heard of called Cops. On May the 6th, Walsh and two Jacksonville police officers all decided to go out for dinner together and, well, take a wild guess where they went to eat. The American Cafe, a.k.a. the current place of employment for none other than Asghar Ali. And yes, Ali was actually working in the kitchen that night and personally prepared the steak that John Walsh ordered. So needless to say, Walsh was completely shocked when he learned that one of the wanted fugitives featured on his show had cooked a meal for him just two weeks before his capture. It would be one thing if Walsh had made the trip to Jacksonville in order to specifically film an episode about Ali, but he was a wanted fugitive from Indianapolis who was last spotted in Orlando, so no one had any idea he was in Jacksonville at that time. This in itself would be a pretty astonishing coincidence, but there's more. On the night the America's Most Wanted episode was broadcast, Sergeant Michelle Cook, one of the Jacksonville police officers who had had dinner with Walsh at the American Cafe, decided to go out with some of her fellow officers, and since they were still filming that aforementioned episode of Cops, the show's cameraman and soundman tagged along with them. They went to another Jacksonville establishment called Jocks and Jill Sports Grill and were watching the episode on TV, but before it even finished, Sergeant Cook received a radio call and was informed that they had received tips that Asghar Ali was in the area and was about to be arrested. It turned out that Ali had been spotted at a homeless shelter just, just five blocks away from the restaurant, so Cook went there and brought the two cops crew members along with her in order to film Ali's capture. But here's the other remarkable coincidence. It turned out that in addition to being employed at the American Cafe, Ali had a second job working as a busboy. While he wasn't working on the night he was arrested, guess where his second place of employment was? Jocks and Jill's Sports Grill. Yes, the same establishment where Sergeant Cook and the camera crew have been watching the America's Most Wanted episode before Ali was captured. In fact, Ali was even wearing a Jocks and Jill sweatshirt when his arrest was filmed. Man, sometimes the universe just aligns itself perfectly to inflict karma on a bad person, and I'd say that this was one of those occasions. Anyway, I hope you got a kick out of this story. Congratulations to Ariel on the three-year anniversary of Murder Under the Midnight Sun, and I hope you continue to stay safe and healthy during this pandemic. Another great story from Robin, and actually one I'd never heard before. I love bizarre coincidence stories, so that's a new one to uh, add to the catalog. And of course, if you haven't checked out The Trail Went Cold or The Forgotten News podcast, do give them a listen. They are both hosted by wonderful people, and they would love to have you as a new listener. Next up, I've got a submission from Kate from the Ignorance Was Bliss podcast. Hey, this is Kate from Ignorance Was Bliss. 
I live in Salem, Massachusetts, which, of course, everybody immediately associates with the witch hysteria of 1692. But for me, my favorite crime story of the area happened in 1998. So that morning, fairly early, a 24-year-old named Chad Austin robbed a bank in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which is about an hour from here if you're driving under normal circumstances. He was not. He led police on a high-speed chase in a stolen car. He did maneuvers such as shooting out the window at cops, hitting speeds of well over 100 miles an hour. He would stop the car a couple of times and then shoot pretty much point-blank at police out the sunroof of this car. He went around or through or reversed to avoid roadblocks. Like, pretty exciting stuff. We don't get this kind of thing in New England very often. He got off the highway three or four miles from here, continued driving pretty fast. It was far too exciting for a little New England town, crossed over the Salem-Beverly Bridge, which is pretty, you should look it up, and as he came into Salem, he he took a specific road that was an odd one to take. It clear, was clear that he was not a local. He hit a utility pole because he couldn't take the turn tight enough, and he got out and ran. Now, one of the things he's known for through this whole thing is he's holding this pink pillowcase. That's what he held the money in. And I don't know why that's funny to me. It's just a fun little detail. Around 11.40 in the morning, 32-year-old Paul Hardy was watching TV with his four-year-old twin sons. He's not feeling wide awake. He had had to get up really early for work that morning, and so he's sort of doing that doze on the couch thing, waiting for the kids to have lunch and nap and so on. Instead, suddenly somebody shoots out the rear sliding glass door on his house, and Austin comes diving through. Over the next several hours, Austin held, he held Hardy and his sons hostage, but he effectively made himself at home. He did things like count out the money on their kitchen table. He made phone calls to his family. He took messages for Hardy, including letting him know that he had a dentist appointment the next day, which, you know, quite nice of him, no? After about four hours, an FBI hostage negotiator was able to convince Austin to release the boys. Kevin and Kyle were their names. And the the two boys were initially they tried to let them out the front door but they wouldn't go they were scared because the house is surrounded by armed cops and news vans and onlookers and it was just a zoo so then uh Paul Hardy let his sons out the garage door and it's the saddest thing really if you look at news footage of it so one of the boys left pretty much as instructed so he gets a couple of steps away from the garage and a cop scoops him up and takes him away 
the other boy tried to run back into the garage to be with his dad. And so there's this footage of the door closing and this little four-year-old banging his little fist on the garage to try to get back in. But ultimately, cops got him as well, got him away from the scene. So now it's just Hardy and Austin in the house. Austin was talking about how much jail time he was going to get. He was watching himself on the news. He was, I mean, this 24-year-old kid. Now, he'd been in and out of jail his entire adult life, and he didn't have good priorities. At one point, he asked Hardy, what do you do for a living? And Hardy just told him, you don't want to know. Because what Hardy did for a living was... He was a corrections officer. Specifically, he ran drills and was a certified instructor of defense tactics at the local jail. Not the ideal house to choose to break into, which is why I love this story so much. So after a little bit, Austin gets distracted by a noise that happened in the kitchen. And when he looked away, Hardy leapt at him and wrestled for the gun. He was able to, you know, through the process, got him to drop the gun. They're wrestling. Austin bit him. I mean, it was not a, a nice, easy, comfortable takedown uh, because everybody was tired. Everybody was trying to get people out of this alive. But Hardy pulled Austin over to the window so that onlooking cops could see that they were fighting. So the police threw a stun grenade in. So the police threw a stun grenade in, which, as you might guess, stunned them and were able to get into the house and take Austin into custody. He got shot in the thigh, but otherwise there were really no significant damages. And even then, he wasn't permanently injured by this shooting. So time passes and ultimately... Kind of, of course, Austin was convicted on multiple charges, initially 30 to 40 years. He was later able to plead it down to 19 to 20 years because on the day of the offense, the Massachusetts law was changed to cap out maximum sentencing for certain crimes. And he's out now. As far as I know, he's living a fairly well-behaved life. I'm not really sure. Another favorite thing about this experience for me was a quote by Paul Hardy on the 10-year anniversary of this whole snafu. He said, he was sitting in my favorite chair watching my TV. I didn't like that. Another great submission from a great lady. Check out Kate's podcast, Ignorance Was Bliss. I hope one day to go to Salem any time of year, but obviously preferably during Halloween season. It's on my bucket list, so I might be sleeping on your couch someday in the future, Kate. Thank you so much for your submission. And last but not least, I've got a submission from friend and co-host of Death Rattle Horror Podcast, Chainsaw Pete, aka Rick. 
Hello, Murder Under the Midnight Sun listeners. Today, I was thinking about sharing with you the story of Balloon Boy. Balloon Boy! Um, I find it so fascinating because it is the best Boy Who Cried Wolf story that I've ever heard. Balloon Boy, also known as Falcon Heen, in 2009 was a six-year-old boy who was reported lost aboard a family's homemade hot air balloon. Uh, I think people have mostly forgotten about Balloon Boy because it's such a fantastic story that if people hadn't forgotten about it, I feel like we would see way more memes and references to it in pop culture. The balloon traveled approximately 50 miles and reached heights of approximately 7,000 feet. In fact, they diverted flights to avoid hitting the balloon. Uh, the entire ordeal lasted approximately two hours. When the balloon finally landed, Little Falcon was nowhere to be found. He had apparently been hiding in an attic space of his family's garage. Later, in an interview with Wolf Blitzer on Live with Larry King, Little Falcon let slip, and I quote, We did it for a show. At this point, the media and law enforcement began to suspect that the family fabricated the whole thing. Richard and Mayumi previously appeared on a reality TV show called Wife Swap, giving credibility that they were indeed possibly seeking fame from this whole ordeal. Personally, I agree with law enforcement, media, and frankly, everyone, that the whole thing was a hoax. I don't know why they thought they could get away with it. Um, maybe they thought they could get a show out of it. I kind of believe that they could get a show out of it, but I also think you kind of have to be very unstable to think that you can pretend that your child is trapped in your homemade hot air balloon and he might die and you're going to get a TV show out of that. But that is the Balloon Boy story. The father is still around and he has orchestrated a heavy metal band for his sons. So if you are interested in heavy metal performed by 14-year-old boys, you can find that out. Or you can check out the story of the Balloon Boy. I think it's great. I think it's interesting. And uh, my goodness, what were they thinking? You know, the Balloon Boy hoax seems pretty damn quaint compared to current news stories. So that's a nice blast from the past, an event I completely forgot it happened and really kind of depressing <laughs> if you think about it too long, but I'll try not to. And you know, um, metal music played by 14 year old boys is actually my favorite genre. So I'm going to check that out.
And thank you all for your submission so much. It means a lot to me. And I hope all of you are staying sane at home. I'd love to hear from you if you have any funny, lighthearted news stories from your neck of the woods. Send them my way. And until next time, good night. <laughs>